Hello to all our listeners. Thank you for joining us today on episode 12 of our MMM podcast, Music is Medicine, Ask the Expert. MMM stands for Music Men's Minds, a nonprofit organization that began seven years ago. Founded by Carol Rosenstein and her late husband, Erwin Rosenstein, Music Men's Minds mission is to serve seniors suffering from neurodegenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia, stroke, traumatic brain injuries, and PTSD. The story begins with Carol. Her husband, Erwin, fell into the clutches of Parkinson's. Erwin's decline due to this neurodegenerative disease was steep, but one thing kept the joy alive through the late stages of Erwin's life, music. Thus, Music Ben's Blinds was born. Enjoy episode 12 of Music is Medicine, Ask the Expert. I'd like to welcome our special guest today, Dr. Asal Habibi. Could you tell us a little about yourself, your research, and what inspired you to pursue your current career path? What did that look like? Wonderful. Well, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be with you all and to share my research and work with um, such an inspiring and wonderful organization and group of people. Um, thank you for everything you're doing in the music research world. Um, so I grew up a pianist. I was a trained um, classical pianist, and I always felt the positive impact of playing piano that brought to my life, rather that it provided a space for processing emotions and kind of being by myself and have a space to myself, but also connected me musically to others. Um, you, you form friends and community when you play music and, and those friendships and community memberships are so strong and powerful and we really shared the love of music that I always cherished a role of music in my life growing up. Um, when I went to college and studied neuroscience and biology, I kind of like sat in a class that was called brain and language. And I really didn't know much about how we can map um, kind of these skills like speech and language and music onto the brain. And that class was uh, very powerful in teaching me that. And as I was kind of going through that class, every time the professor talked about language, it kind of, for me, translated, oh, then how would music would be like this? Is it the same hemisphere? Is it the same regions? Um, so um, when I did my PhD at UC Irvine in an auditory neuroscience lab, I convinced my uh, doctoral advisor that, well, music is a form of auditory stimuli, and can I kind of uh, move away from looking at speech and language and more to music and better understand how adults process kind of basic features of music like pitch and rhythm, and if they have differentiation in their auditory abilities, in their neurological abilities, would that make any difference in terms of how they process music? So that kind of um, started my career in this world of music science. Um, by the time I did a postdoc, I wanted to go back to that route that I mentioned of the love of music and admiration of music as a child and better understand if we do provide music training that is quality and high quality and accessible to children, does it help them not only in terms of their musical skills, like making them musicians, but does it help them with um, their other skills that we are interested in, for example, cognitive skills and attention and memory, but also social skills? Does it um, support their development in the world of empathy and compassion and pro-social behavior? And um, that's what I've been doing since, uh, understanding impact of learning music and practicing music. So not just listening music, but practicing music, making music, whether it's instrumental or vocal as part of the choir, 
on, on the brain and the associated kind of behavioral outcome of those changes on the brain. So speaking to that choral piece a little bit, have you found any links between the music and that speech and language component that you had looked at previously? Yeah, so um, a couple of years ago, we started uh, running these choirs um, for um, older adults because I was really interested in this ability of speech perception. So we all have difficulty perceiving speech in a noisy environment. You may have experienced it if you're in a restaurant or in a coffee shop, especially now these places are very loud and it's, it's difficult to socialize there. You kind of have to scream. And um, But we know that um, both children and adults who have had music training or are participating in musical activities perceive speech in noisy environment better. They encode the, the, the speech better and they are better at orienting their attention, attentional resources to the relevant speech. So we decided to bring in older adults who have had no music training and with the help of our music school here at USC Thornton School of Music that had a choir program, provide these models of community choir to these older adults and look at that specific skill that if they had no music training, they do choir for 12 to 16 weeks, does it help with their speech and noise perception? And not only we found positive impact of music training on speech and noise perception in terms of behavioral, so in very noisy environment when we just kind of like increase the volume of the noise as if you have like people around you talking um these older adults who have had music training as part of the choir they they still were able to detect the relevant speech whereas their control counterparts who just did kind of another activity whether it's a book club or listening club they didn't. So there was something about that integration of the auditory and motor system that really allowed for um, beneficial um, impact on that speech and noise perception. And um, interestingly, not only we saw that behaviorally, but when we looked at their brain using electrophysiology, we also observed that after 12 to 15 weeks of singing, they're even better at encoding sound. So their auditory system has a stronger response to incoming sound. Uh, and if you think, if you encode something better, you can interact with it better. You have a more complete information to have as a, a kind of means of communication going forward. And this was very short. This was 12 or 16 weeks of choir. It's not a lifetime singing. Even now I can see Carol nodding and I, I love when I can see Carol nodding along to the, the research that's been done and just the way that she's seen it play out in, in her life and her work. Yeah. I'd love to know a little bit more about USC's Brain and Creativity Institute and how your work has aligned with, with their goals and, and what's going on over there. Yeah, um, USC Brain and Creativity Institute is, um, is a wonderful and unusual institute, neuroscience institute, because uh, we are a group of faculty. The institute is directed by Antonio and Hanna Damasio, who are very well-known neuroscientists. But um, they are a group of faculty. We are really interested in human behavior and human culture and, and arts as part of that culture. So if you walk into our institute, you see a lot of arts on the wall. Uh, we do have a lecture hall slash music hall that has a piano in it that is a performance space. Um, across that hallway, we also have kind of modern technology of studying the brain, which is we have an MRI scanner and electrophysiology, but we really are committed to understand humans, not only from studying their brain, but um, 
cherishing and really emphasizing that humanity part of us that is arts and culture and not only observing that in 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 what changes in the brain but also looking at the behavior of for example children when they play music and the behavior of interaction between audience and musician on the stage and that emotional bond that you create when you play that and then understanding what are the neurobiological or biological basis of that so my lab within the institute is um, kind of referred to as the brain and music lab because my emphasis has been really working on music both why do we listen to music that we listen to what determines who listens to what music uh, what kind of a profile one has to have individual preferences um, also and then also part of it is being kind of really looking at impact of learning music across the lifespan now I'm studying with um, that a study that I did with the Alec Philharmonic and their YOLA program children young children we did a longitudinal study for about seven years that we followed children and um, but for a couple of years now we have also expanded looking at adults and older adults and really the question of music for me comes in place that not making not everybody needs to be a musician not everybody needs to have music as a career but it to me like as humans we all have the right to have access to quality music and also um, kind of celebrating that part of our culture that has uh, music as part of it I mean we, we sat around fire in our ancestors and played music and that is part of our human cognition and evolution that I think we should continue to um, cherish and respect. What role would you say that culture plays in the impact of music on our, our well-being and our cognitive state? I think, so I can give you examples of our findings from our study with children of um, the program that I work with is called YOLA. Um, that stands for Youth Orchestra of Los Angeles. It's a free music training program um, that uh, is provided to uh, low-income communities of Los Angeles. So all these children receive a musical instrument and then receive very good quality music instruction. Um, typically in their everyday life, they don't have access to music, but over the years, one of the things that we have seen is that not only musically they get better, obviously they're learning music, so they play music instruments and they sing, but there's a social bonding and community that exists between them now. And we can even measure that in terms of their pro-social behavior. For example, the more synchronized they are with each other in musical performance, they're more pro-social towards each other. They're more helping and sharing with each other more. And it seems that that's even, if you think about it evolutionary, probably one of the reasons that music stuck with us over time, because music doesn't really have a, have a function of our survival, right? It's not like food or water, but it seems that it has survived evolutionary with us. And I think one of the reasons for that is that it has this strong way of connecting us and, and, and creating these social bonds. Uh, we all go to a concert and move together. And for that two hours that we are in that space, we are all like one. We're a really strong community and feeling so strong towards each other. And it seems that that neural entrainment, that neural synchrony that um, kind of synchronizes with the beat of the music or the rhythm of the other musicians is, is a strong predictor of how this social behavior is. Um, and the other thing that I say is that it's um, because this program that 
we worked with was modeled after um, this uh, program in, in Venezuela called El Sistema, which is kind of a social intervention to bring music to children's life. But it allowed really for uh, introducing music from around different countries of Latin America to music instruction. And it's a way of even kind of finding forging bonds between communities in Los Angeles. That was the first time that we saw that these children are learning not only Western classical music, but the music of their cultural background and ethnic background. And that is a way of introducing cultures to each other. And we saw that their parents now are involved and when they go home, they practice more. So it's it just really has this um, connectivity property to it that I think is very strong. I know at Music Men's Minds, we see that that social component is so key to these community-based interventions. Um, I was wondering if you could speak on how these community inventions, in addition to the social component, promote a more wide-reaching health and well-being space among diverse communities as opposed to very select communities. Yeah, I think that's that's a really important question to think about, especially, I mean, I think in relation to the wonderful work that uh, Music Men's Mind as an organization does for older adults, we know that loneliness and isolation is a, a symptom and kind of a very challenging problem for older adults now, um, even post-pandemic, because um, that's just kind of, it seems that our society is, is tending to more isolation or uh, not doing community work. And, and in our work, what we've seen is that um, when we bring the older adults to our center and creating this choir, I remember some of them telling me, well, I didn't sign up for the study to come sing, even though the study was called the choir study. Uh, because, you know, we have all these inhibition that, uh, oh, you can't sing, you're not a singer. You're... But really that 12 weeks of spending together, not only um, really, it kind of benefited some of the biological um, abilities that we were interested in, like speech and noise perception that I told you about. But we really saw evidence in terms of their well-being, their uh, managing their anxiety, their anxiety of like uh, what we refer to as state anxiety. When you are faced with a stressful condition, how do you manage that? We saw improvement in that. And just really a, a bond among them that continue after the choir. And, and I mean, it just seems short-sighted that when you just can group of, bring, you need enough resources to group, bring a group of people together and use music as something that evolutionary we know is joyful. We know that has impact on cognition and social domains and use that as a way to, to share community and culture and introducing different cultures to each other. So we've had music really from different um, backgrounds that were practiced as part of the choir. And that's for people to a way to know and get to know each other better too. So there are all these benefits, whether it be behavioral or biological metrics that we've looked at um, and proven. And can you explain the hesitancy to implement music-based interventions in our healthcare system regularly and how we might be able to change that in future years? I think um, I'm, I'm hopeful that um, things are changing both in terms of the healthcare and also the education system. So when we started this study in 2012 with the LHVL 
uh, YOLA was really the only after school program that was so wide range in provide. There are many other organizations that provide uh, after school programming, but they just had a kind of a larger scale to make that change that so every child has access to music. And, you know, over time, we, we have published papers on the benefits on, on academic achievement and cognition and social behavior and the brain and other groups around the country have too. And to me, it was really encouraging that, for example, last year in California, voters voted to have um, every child in every school would have access to music education. And, and really, that's what you need to pique a child's interest, right? You have to introduce them to something because in, in the absence of it, you don't know if a child is a musician or not or interested in music or not. But that accessibility was hopeful. I think I begin to see the same thing in the healthcare system, especially with the um, kind of the induction of the Sound Health Network at the NIH and the resources available to that and the support of um, research programs because these research, I mean, you know better and, and your organization, it takes a lot of resources to do research studies with older adults or with clinical populations because you wanna be able to provide them with every possible resource to participate. You don't wanna discomfort someone to come to a lab to do a study. But as long as these are protected and supported by the funding mechanisms that now NIH is offering, I think we are going towards an evidence-based solid database that, that would really communicate that message. And I think another um, really good um, kind of um, consequence of this network is also providing, for example, when I was doing this um, choir study four years ago, I didn't know about Music Men's Mind or similar organizations, but through the Sound Health Network, we get to know each other and then we can each bring our expertise. So I don't have to go invent a choir, whereas that's not my expertise. You already have that expertise in your organization and the population, and we can come in as researchers with our expertise and, and kind of forging that relationship, I think would really help making the evidence more robust and, and rigorous. What is the kind of reach that the Sound Health Network has, both you know, geographically and topic-wise? Um, I, I I see it growing. So the Sound Health Initiative um, started in two thousand nineteen or eighteen. I'm, I'm not sure exactly if one of the two years at the NIH with the help of Renee Fleming and the director of the NIH at the time. Uh, and then after that, the network was established that is now being uh, kind of hosted at UCSF um, uh, with Julian Johnson and Charles Lim as co-directors. But they really have put an effort um, and, and kind of inviting all the stakeholders, the scientists, the music organizations, the music educators, the music therapists. And I think that is kind of the heavy lifting to put these people in touch because we don't know about each other. Uh, we we, I got to know about your organization through them. And, and, and I think just making these introductions and then letting research to shape and form, studies to shape and form where every stakeholder, a music therapist or a music player or a musician and a researcher can get paired up to do a study. I, I believe that um, nationally their reach is very wide and I hope that international, and there are models of this internationally. I mean, if you look at other countries, they seem to do, a little bit better in um, implementing music, both as an education and also as therapeutic measures in their healthcare system, especially in countries in Europe. So we have good models to follow. We just have to figure out um, the, the, the resources and the funding to support such processes. 
Does your research um, dive into any relationships between memory and music? Uh, actually, one of my graduate students currently is working on, on this in relation to nostalgic music listening. So we know that you can listen to a 10 second of a song and you're taken back to your prom day and it's just everything is so present and vivid and you can have the smells are there. So we were very interested that what is it about nostalgic music that does that? And then if there is a way to relate memories to listening to music that is nostalgic, can we use nostalgic music as a way of therapy uh, for especially individuals who are at the early stages of dementia and Alzheimer's to help them retrieve autobiographical memory? Um, so her name is Sarah Hennessy. She's completing her dissertation with this work. She currently just finished collecting data from 60 older and younger adults who came in we selected individually their nostalgic music and some control songs, and we just finished scanning them in their in the in our MRI scanner, the 60th subject. So stay tuned for those results. I think we'll have that coming out. But we know that what part of it is that when you listen to music that is nostalgic, because that music is not only it's not only embedded in terms of memory, but because it really engages the emotional system of the brain and it kind of has co-encoding in, in the emotional network and the memory network, kind of there is another way of accessing that memory through the emotional system rather than just the straight memory pathways. So it sounds like even the cognitive effects of music in later adulthood especially can be even more potent when there's that nostalgia component. Yeah, I think anything that, I mean, we, we are emotional beings. So I think anything that involves your affective system of the brain uh, has a secondary impact in terms of both inputting, in encoding and the retrieval of a memory. Incredible. Well, I'd like to open it up to Anu or Kayla or John or Carol. Carol. I'm trying to get the bit here. This is just amazing. Thank you so much, Asal. My question is, we are embarking on our pilot studies and Music Men's Minds has now been introduced to drum circles as another form of allowing those that are gun shy about, I can't sing, I don't play an instrument, but for them to be able to get in at a grassroots level and to make music while they're drumming. Yes. So now our offering is a drum circle, which is very popular. We have sing-alongs, also popular, and a full-on band. As we're embarking on our pilot studies, and yes. I've raised this question to the other researchers, and I think it's time for us to have a nice big researcher meeting. But in your um, work, do you see that any one of those three forms of interaction are better for a pilot study data collection? It really depends on, depends on a few things. So it depends on first the question. So what is the question we want to answer, whether that is looking at well-being versus auditory perception versus managing mental health or uh, kind of like anxiety, depression. So they we probably would want to design the intervention based on the question. 
But the other thing is also accessibility, right? You say that people come in and they don't want to sing and drumming maybe is an easier pathway to kind of embark joy of music playing. I always encourage, and I think, um, Carol, you're thinking about along the same lines of what we're interested in. And I think we think are is the most potent in music making, whether you're singing or drumming or playing an instrument, not necessarily passively listening to music, but active engagement. And, and this is a conversation I actually often have with parents when they tell me what instrument should I start my young child with? And I was like, well, you have music at home. You can sing along with your family members. We all used to do that before. At some point, we were like, no, we can't sing. We have to stop. We're not good singers, but children sing all the time. Or you can have drum circles on pots and pans. So things can be easily implemented and done. So I think um, anything that... To me, it's important that participants feel as part of the research study in a way that they think they are not only subjects, but they're contributing and, and they, they feel that their importance is important in the data collection and the quality of data collection, and then they get something out of it. Music is really meaningful, but it's joyful. And if, if you can find joy in drumming with others and we can kind of establish that kind of a continue because if you are feeling joy you come back the next time and you so we want to have a study that has some continuation so i think once we decide on the, the pilot study or, or you're deciding the pilot study is like what is the length of the time like for example we can't have a one year of like every week come twice a week of a choir that's just not for the population we're looking at is is doable so i think making adjustments based on the question and the population but as i said as as short as 12 weeks we've been beginning to see benefits in older adults interesting and to follow up on that um from a selfish standpoint having been in business now um, as an executive director for Music Men's Minds for nearly nine years, I, I keep hearing, well, in order for a grant proposal, you've got to put metrics in. How, you know, what, what have you done to show that, that something is worthwhile? So I want to be sure that the researchers understand from our selfish standpoint, we're needing metrics to be able to use for fundraising. Yeah. And, and so whatever instruments are the final outcome of questionnaires, there's got to be a focus on giving us data that will help us in our grant writing. Yeah, yeah. I think anecdotal stories are always powerful, but eventually we want to go past anecdotes and show that in a group we see systematic changes. And I think those answers, those questions also depends on sometimes you're in, we are interested in the mechanism of change. Like what is it about singing, for example, that allows for more compassion and empathy? But so, so for that, we may want to do more um, kind of like mechanistic work, whether that's neuroimaging or physiology or blood biomarkers. But sometimes you're just really interested to see if something is effective or not. So if participating in a drug circle is better at reducing depression. For that, we could just use surveys and questionnaires that has that answer. So I think, again, depending on the question and the specific funding source or grant proposal that we're going with, we could define a study that 
best answers because they don't want to throw everything at these participants. People that get exhausted, they don't want to participate. We just want to be having a narrow and focused um, outcome in terms of the data that we want to collect. You mentioned first off, one of the things that you've uh, found that uh, music engagement and uh, uh, in seniors has started with kids, but you said it's also true in seniors. And you don't have to be singing and playing music your whole life. And that is speech perception improves when people are singing and, and enjoying uh, music together, even if they haven't done it for a long time, they just start. So I'm wondering if, if speech perception, which might be easy to um, gauge and to channel with verbal uh, questions and, uh, and and questions of caregivers that do they find their the seniors are easily more understood afterwards and easily more understand them after yeah. after after uh, after an hour of singing or after a couple of weeks of doing it I I agree with you you don't have to see a year long of two times a week or whatever that the the enjoyment and and what they get out of it and mood elevation uh, is um, apparent with far less than that. So I would say speech perception would be a way uh, a certain thing to gauge as a study and um, and and lowering anxiety as well because these things are much, very easily apparent. Yeah, so for example, in what I was um, talking in terms of speech and noise perception, that is easily assessed. We just have somebody in, we have them wear a headphone, we, we present speech kind of uh, patterns, and then we change the background noise to make the background noise louder and louder and see even when there is a loud background noise, can somebody still perceive the underlying speech okay and better? And we actually see improvement. So we do this two times, one time before the intervention and one time after the intervention. Great. And that can be just done in a quiet room with a headphone and an, an, and a, an experimenter. So that's not a huge endeavor into doing a giant, like a MRI study that involves. And that's an as I as you said, that's an important skill to have because not only if you are perceiving somebody's speech better, you probably have a better chance of better communication with the other person. You are perceiving the prosody of the speech better too. So you would know if the person who's speaking with you is angry, sad, so like a better emotional connection and, and interaction so that does make a difference and that as i said that can be easily done and 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 it co the data collection for that it can be even done remotely like in in a setting where the choir is happening so we don't need to bring participants to the lab i think part of the flexibility of doing music science uh, similar to education and some other healthcare science is to be flexible to do these more naturalistic setting studies. So being able to to send researchers to the site and find and um, kind of define metrics that can be measured there instead of uh, inconveniencing the participants to come all the way to a lab and wait. So it, just having that flexibility is important. Uh, that's uh, fabulous. The categories that um, I think are most interesting uh, to this and have to do with music are the things that make seniors with neurodegenerative issues more understandable, less anxious, 
more willing to partake and extend themselves uh, yes. to others. And you said singing with others, like in harmonizing, you have to listen to the other person. Absolutely. You're not aware that you're doing it, but it's just that exercise itself makes you do that. And I think that, and you're saying that that does carry over. Yeah. 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 So what we can do in the major categories to improve life for these people and the families they live in and caregivers are the things that we want to focus on and could do. And we've just discovered two or three of them right now in this conversation. That's fabulous. Yeah, I think anything that we're not going to claim that singing can cure Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, but I think these can be really used as toolboxes to manage the anxiety and agitation and, and um, the depression that comes with the progression of these and also the manage the burden of caregivers. So if, if they can have a session of singing together, it's just lifting their mood together. That That's a way of like being sure that the caregiver is not exhausted, but also it doesn't only have a caregiver patient relationship, but two human beings who can have this emotional experience of singing together, which is very powerful in connecting us. Yeah, you're building confidence in somebody who is used to not having any. Yeah. hiding in the shadows and and sort of losing his self uh entity and and basically giving up on being creative yeah and letting them do the the other thing that's we're involved with a lot in this kind of a change is that going into senior centers and diverse areas in the city and and sort of going into a macro situation of building this out into big scale is that we can influence public health by making uh, the infrastructure less involved in somebody's life, less money being paid to take care of them, to, set, to, you know, to fix them after accidents and, and after overdoses and uh, make, make their lives a lot happier and a lot more self-contained. Yeah. Then you're doing something for a community, not just for individuals. Correct. And I think that's, uh, sorry, Carol, just saying this, that I think, in addition to do research, as I said, that's one of the ways to, to build evidence. I think these kind of larger um, interventions in the community, when people see for themselves that as a group, that their parents and grandparents have a, a, observe a change in their mood, that, that is uh, speaks volume in terms of what, as a society, what we demand to have for our senior cares. So like having art therapy and music therapy and, and music activities being part of the standard care that we offer in every of these uh, senior homes or settings that, that would be similar that we now prescribe exercise or movement, we should be able to also include that in the menu of care for these seniors. And now when we're thrown into a melting pot at a senior center where 50 or 60 people are bust in every day, and we're gonna show up for an hour on a said day and time. We don't know what's troubling these seniors. Some may not have diagnoses. They may just be seniors that wanna get out and have some fun. So our sampling is all over the map. We don't have you know, 20 dementia diagnosed patients and we don't have 40 Alzheimer's or Parkinson patients. I mean, is, is this study okay to just have a melting pot of seniors? Yeah, I, mean, I think if you're not, it depends again what 
specific question we're answering. If you're not answering the question of Alzheimer's, for example, we could just ask the question of whether singing can benefit well-being and depression in ages, let's say 75 and above, in a diverse community. We can get information from the individuals who participate in the research if they do have a diagnosis. So as when researchers go and we do a little interview and get background information. So if we see something odd in the data, we can account for. So maybe out of the 40 participants in your study, 30 uh, or two or three have uh, kind of more significant Alzheimer's disease. And then we see their performance different from the other, the rest of the group. So if we have that information, we can account for it. But if our questions are really well-being, anxiety, depression, regardless of their diagnosis, we can always include that in the whole sample and, and see how it changes over time. Mm -hmm. and a, a, result, a result we're not, we're certainly expecting to get is that we can say that this is preventative as well as something that helps and helps build people build capability to withstand mm -hmm. neurocognitive issues as they get going because they're, they're, they're building up those muscles. Yeah. Do you see the use of any form of artificial intelligence device to be able to capture, say a picture before and after an event and have the smiley faces and be able to show a mood elevation at the end of the program and captured through artificial intelligence? That's or a very good question. And um, Apple Watch. Yeah, there are a few things. So an Apple Watch or a Fitbit, uh, any type of these watches, can capture heart rate variability. So it can capture heartbeat and heart rate. And heart rate variability is a very good signifier of, of, uh, of sympathetic nervous system of how anxious you are, how stressed you are. So if everybody in the group is wearing one of these Fitbits or, or, or Apple watches, we can continue, and if they consent for their data to be collected, we can kind of look at their heart rate variability and kind of the state of their physiology before and after the session and see if that has changed. So that's one thing that I see now done is a lot in these naturalistic setting um, studies that they use. The other thing that is becoming more and more popular are cameras that um, not picture, but uh, on the video, they can capture facial features. And from facial features, you can predict somebody's stress level and, and, and mood based on some machine learning algorithm. So uh, that's another thing that if we can put an iPad, for example, in front of someone while they're singing and capture these uh, facial expressions, that's another way of predicting where they are in terms of their physiology. And who collects all of this? Who's going to be, say, we are going to be using an, an, a tablet to yeah. create a, a picture. Who, who does the hands-on stuff? Well, it depends on, for example, if you partner with us at USC, we would be the research team and we would collect all the data. We'd have, we would submit a proposal to our ethics board and say, these are the data we want to collect and the ethics board of USC would question it and then hopefully approve it. And based on that, we'll take some consent form to this setting and tell the participants, if you are in this session, we would like you to consent that your data can be collected before and after the session. If you don't wanna be consenting, please don't wear the wash or don't use the iPad. 
And then we collect all the data. It will come all to our server using these um, iPads or watches. And then we'll analyze it. And, and based on the hypothesis and the question, we go into try to answer uh, what was the underlying hypothesis. So going forward, we haven't put you all together. And Anu or Kayla, when we're done, if we could share with Dr. Habibi our research document. But we've got um, some people from UCLA. And we've got you. We've got Mary Mittelman from NYU. You're all going to have to go on the same page. Yeah, I think we as a group, we'd have to decide what are the metrics that are important to us, but also to you as an organization. Uh, what is it that you want to see? Uh, and in both in terms of fundraising, but also as, a, as the mission of like, what are the changes? Is it important? Is well-being important? Is anxiety important? Is um, social connections and belongings important? So we will select a few metrics. And then from there, we will design questionnaires or some of these machine learning devices that would answer that question. I think that would be a really good discussion to have among all the researchers and see who has the expertise for analyzing what signal or what type of a survey question, and then take it from there. So we have two instruments we created you know, when they say an organization starts in your garage. Well, Music Men's Minds did start in our garage at home. And we had a, 10 UCLA undergrads meeting a doctor, Sue Hosack from the Rand Corporation. She was teaching our students about research and they created a questionnaire. And, and so we have that as a, a, uh, an example of of that uh, class, yeah. if, if you will. Then we developed another questionnaire with the help of Dr. Mary Mittelman. So we have another instrument. I think that's the term I can use that these questions yeah. are called instruments. So we sent those instruments to Dr. Lavretsky. Um, I also want Kayla or Anu after this to be able to not only send you the research team, but also the two instruments for you to see. Because I think it's time for all of us to get on a Zoom meeting platform and have it out. And, 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 and I've never made my wishes as clearly known as I have today with you. And it's just that we've been putting things together. And yeah time to roll up our sleeves and, and work. So we're going to send you those two instruments. And I think we're going to now put it out to the team to let give us a few dates that are suitable. And we'll just have this free for all on a Zoom platform and, and watch you all develop an instrument. Yeah. No, I think that's very, and, and we could also use both the ones that you have provided um, NIH also just released a toolkit of uh, music-based, assessing music-based interventions for diseases of aging. So they have specific question questionnaires for Parkinson's, specific questionnaires for Alzheimer's, specific questions for stroke, very related to music-based interventions. So we could also use some of that as models. This was a toolkit that was developed. I was part of this group about a year ago that people 
all around the country got together uh, research groups similar to what you're describing on Zoom. And we spent like hours and hours deciding what is best for each group. But now it's it's a toolkit. I um, Kayla, I'll send a paper to you, just came out in neurology um, last month. Uh, but they describe the toolkit and all the questionnaires that goes with every category. Um, so this is, I'll just ask one more question. This is really wonderful. Part of the uh, the fact that we obviously promote the fact that music is a personal health plus psychologically and physically and physiologically yeah. people in this in this cohort, but it's also preventative as well. By extension, you take this argument to its conclusion, you're going to come up and say, yeah, we really should be teaching music engagement to kids starting at the age of five so they can be able to prepare themselves and have the armor to withstand all of the things are going to, you know, mentally and psychology bombard them during their life. Yeah. Uh, we know that, but that's not particularly our concern today. We want to build groups and we want to make this go on a mass scale. Yeah. We want it to be public health. You mentioned about, you know, and the analogy to, to exercise and stuff. We think it's exactly that. We think that the, uh, all Medicare patients and uh, along with having their gym memberships paid for, should have there should be prescribed you know music engagement groups which you can do from home uh the pandemic has showed us or go in real life and socialization that involves it just being with people listening and sharing different ethnic musics between each other which is what happens at these senior groups and stuff and and harm let alone harmonizing my goodness that's where you really are learning to listen to each other and and that will uh, speech cognization and, and all of that will get much, much better before it. That stands to reason. Um, these are things that we can prove to, to make the, the medical establishment yeah. understand what they're talking about. They, they sort of understand and they say, well, how can you prove this? Uh, anecdotal doesn't uh, uh, do the job except when the anecdotal response is 100%. <laughs> <laughs> Which it is, pretty much. So um, this will be great. Uh, yeah, uh, and I think in terms of, I think a good uh, angle with also policy is really showing how much resources we would save. Uh, and that's kind of with, with the students and, and, and younger children when we show that if you teach music, music can be used as a way for children to show up to class, to have less dropout, to have less, the more engagement with academic achievement. So all the money we're going to lose by so-and-so dropping out from school and like half high school, if we can put that early on into music learning. So music is another reason for them to have a community at school and show up. And because of that, they also get engaged with their academic work. That's a long-term plan to save funds. So I think if we could just kind of map the same saving of resources, if we invest into art-based education, uh, art-based therapy for older adults, that would really shift the, the focus and the view. Absolutely. You're putting less burden on hospitals and uh, less burden on emergency rooms. And that's not to say anything about the fact that the, the part of the brain that, that, that deals with music and the kind also has a very, very close relationship to math yeah. and rationality. I mean, music is really a, a math problem in tones. People's ability to solve problems, yeah. make decisions, think through an issue are enhanced by this. 
And uh, it'd be lovely to be able to show that, that even in people who spend their life being confused at, the, at this particular point and have lost their confidence in their decision-making and remembering yeah. something that still benefit from yeah. them yeah. a little bit. Just one quick question before we go. Um, I was curious if there are any biometric things that we can obtain through self-reporting or when it comes to like symptom alleviation, there's going to be different symptoms based on what people are struggling with in the groups. Is there a way to sort of, whether it's pain, whether it's tremor, whether it's sleep, measure symptom alleviation as a whole? Yeah. So I think you could use, um, I'm happy to share some of the questionnaires and surveys that we use both for pain, stress, anxiety, like there's this just generic uh, patient health questionnaire for depression and anxiety that is typically used with geriatric population. And even though the source of anxiety and agitation may be different because one is experiencing symptoms of Parkinson's and the other is experiencing just depression because of some um, kind of dramatic event, you still get similar responses. So I think if you categorize some of the biometrics that you're interested in as an outcome, that's just pain, anxiety, well-being, we can just supply, I'm happy to send you those questionnaires and you can just implement it before and after. Or if you're doing three three time points before, middle of the intervention and after, and just kind of like map it. I mean, you are all good students. You can just put this in an R and, and see how things change over time. And to just give you a sense of a trend, let's see, anxiety is changing, but depression is not. So maybe for this group, we should really focus on stress and anxiety. Okay, great. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, is there anything else you wanted to share before we get into our outro? I think uh, I'm just, I think we covered a lot. I'm happy to be engaged and part of this conversation. And thank you for everything you're all doing. Hey, Kayla, and then Anu, anything on your mind, a question that you would have? Kayla, you want to go ahead? Uh, sure. So I know you do a lot of research with both kids and you're now looking to also do research with older populations. Do you see that there's any difference between the effect of music? Do you see that it's greater um, on children compared to different age groups? So you're asking if I compare children to older adults or like what what is more potent? Mm. Um, we haven't done that comparison. Um, I'm very interested in the question of like, at what age learning music is the, not the best, but the most effective in the, in, and I think it's effective across the, the ages and development because the brain is very neuroplastic, even in older adults. But in terms of, I'm running a study right now that some of the participants in our study started at age eight and some of them started at age um, 12. And we are following them for three years. And to me, it's, it's, the, the answer, it's kind of related to what you're asking is that, is music learning at age eight more effective in your cognitive development? Or is it when you're in middle school and you actually have make, you have to make decisions that are more relevant to real life, right? You have to like choose what school and peer group. So maybe in that sense has different impact. That's really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, something. Um... I was kind of thinking about is that in your research, have you noticed, especially in kids, how music affects maybe like kids who have autism or like hard of hearing? Because I know like specifically that's something I'm really like interested in, kind of passionate about is, you know, how music affects 
neurodegenerative disease but at a very young age and how you know it can rehabilitate kids and allow them to kind of socialize more and even you know like allow them to kind of fit into you know society as they as they grow up so is that something you've noticed or seen yeah so in in my uh group we um we did we have not had any child with um hard of hearing or autism i know that there's a lot of work that's shown uh, music training is is music playing especially even as drum circles is effective uh, for children with autism both in terms of their social skills and their language development I'm kind of relevant note, I have a colleague, his name is Ray Goldsworthy at our School of Medicine here, who does music appreciation for adults who are hard of hearing. So most of them are patients with um, uh, implants, uh, cochlear implants, who have lost hearing at some point of their life, and they have a, a weekly music hour that they all get together and play music. And for them, cochlear implants are really good at uh, processing speech, but they're not designed for processing music. So there's a lot of learning how to listen to music. And this uh, Music Hour Weekly has been really effective in engaging them with music, part of something that they just really lost because of their hearing loss. But now that I've seen them after a year, it's just their engagement and kind of their brightness in their face and they come to Music Hour is, is really inspiring. So I'm happy also, Anu, to put you in touch with that group if you want to check that music hour it's on zoom so you can just always go that'd be wonderful thank you yeah do you use the term when you were talking about uh in nostalgic music and you remember parts of your life and the, the emotions that come with it, do you use the strong term reminiscent therapy in in this uh yeah i i mean there is uh, we use a lot of what what we call reminiscent bump which is kind of the music that you listen to in during your adolescent years that is kind of the best predictor of what you what the music is that you listen to later and then what what is the best music to use to help you retrieve memories so i think it's similar to what you're alluding to and and revive self-worth because a lot of these people are feeling that they're failing and not and they're burdened to people but they go back to periods of time where they were really on it yes you know and they're then and they will generally think of the the the, the music at the best parts of their life uh, not the worst. Yes. And that's an emotional uh, boost. Boost, exactly. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, this is because she is so perfect for us. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. This is such a pleasure. And I, I am looking forward to continued collaboration. I think we, we all bring different pieces to this puzzle that hopefully can solve into this major public health change in terms of how we care for our little adults. Great. Well, this is just amazing. So um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a beautiful evening. You too. And I will uh, look forward to hear from you. And Katie, I'll send you some questionnaires. If I forget, please just ping me. End of semester, we're wrapping stuff up. So sometimes things get lost. Great. Thanks you also for being flexible with time. I'll see you soon again. Thank you so much for joining us today on Music as Medicine, Ask the Expert. We're so grateful that you were able to come on today and share your knowledge with us, and we can't wait to hear more about your amazing work in the future. Thank you to our listeners for joining us today. If you would like to learn more about Music Men's Minds, please visit our website at www.musicmensminds.org. If this is a cause that you'd like to support, please consider donating to Music Men's Minds. We accept donations through our website. Thank you again to Dr. Asal Habibi for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.